This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on a variety of platforms, and I love reading them all off at the beginning, but I'm starting to wonder whether I really should be doing that or not. But anyway, it's I'm coming at you on uh, iHeart, Radio, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and with video here on YouTube. Basically, everywhere good podcasts are sold. That's where you'll find me. So, okay, this week, as you can see, I am welcoming guest Deborah Powney. Hey, Deborah. Hi, how are you? I am good, and I am very happy to have you on the show here. Deborah and I actually just started interacting uh, just a couple weeks ago on Twitter, and she reached out to me, and I found she had some things to say, and then we started talking, and then we did a Zoom call, and I just was endlessly fascinated, and I think you guys will be too, by her background and some of the things she got to tell me that I was like, oh, we really got to talk about this. And this, <laughs> So Deborah um, is right now, she's in the United Kingdom. She lives over there, and um, she's graciously joining me here. She is a PhD candidate right now in um, psychology and domestic abuse. That is the direction of her studies right now. But she has a 14-year history working for a company called Diageo, and that is a company that produces alcoholic beverages and drinks and markets said drinks in the UK. And uh, when we started talking about this, you guys know out there, if you've paid any attention to my channel for any length of time, how often I go on a roll or rant about the deceptive practices and, um, you know, some of the nonsense that goes on and propaganda that goes on in the world of marketing and in the world of um, getting people to buy things, getting people to want things, whether it's political candidates or whether it's a drink or whether it's a teddy bear. There are techniques that are in use. And I have been looking forward to talking to somebody who was a true professional in this area for a long time. So when Deborah and I crossed paths, I was like, oh, we're, we got to do this. And, she, and, and like I said, she graciously agreed to be on the podcast. So, um, okay, so I guess to start with, I, um, we were just talking a few minutes ago, a little pre-show here about this uh, Diageo company. What maybe I, I was under the impression, and maybe I'm grossly wrong about this, that each individual manufacturer, Jack Daniels, or uh, I, I, I'm not, none of the other names are coming up to mind right now, but the other, <laughs> all the other alcohol companies, right? Yeah. I was under the impression that they sort of individually did their thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, I must say, I, I, I have to start by saying that working for Diageo, I absolutely adored it. Um, but I did have a joke myself that I, when people used to ask me what I did for a living, I used to say I was a drug pusher, ah. uh, before I told them that I was in sales and marketing for, um, it's the world's largest alcohol manufacturer. Um, and nothing that I'm going to tell you is any different from any other organization. I suppose the only difference with larger organizations and more sophisticated organizations is that they are very able to attract the right talent and have buckets of money to throw at this. Um, there's, there's, um, 
it's subtle, I suppose, the, the marketing of, of any kind of brand. And increasingly, we're seeing that people have become brands. No, nowhere more applicable than social media. And we certainly see it with politicians um, across the globe, I would imagine. Um, but certainly in Western civilization, we're seeing it predominantly that people become brands. We've even seen it with um, what I find fascinating to go on a slight tangent is, but to use uh, American um, politici politicians and politics is um, the branding of um, first ladies. Um, we've just seen um, the, the previous first lady do arena tours across um, the world and in the UK and come up with a brand that's that's been lovely, wonderfully branded. It's, it's a fantastic job, whether you agree with it or not. Um, Becoming with Michelle Obama. Um, I haven't read any of her books or, or seen um, or even been to one of the, the talks that she did. But what I do really appreciate as a, as a previous um, marketer and, and salesperson is how that is branded. Yeah. But, you know, it's, um, it's beautifully branded and it's really hooked in an audience to the, to the um, point where I was reading an, an article the other day that was saying that um, when it comes to your voting, are, are people going to be targeting the becoming vote with Michelle Obama? And I thought that's really fascinating because this is a first lady who has, um, has come out with a vast career built on the back of that, that um, unelected role, strangely enough, <laughs> um, but has now got such influence with, I'm assuming, a female vote that it's actually become part of the political diatribe. Um, so that, that in and of itself is really interesting in a marketing perspective. I, my, yeah. Well, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say my journey into marketing started with my undergraduate degree. Mm. And um, I was very fortunate to um, study in a, a science-based university. And my undergrad degree was in something called management science. And um, management science, management science. And it was it, it was was very scientific. We did uh, um, subjects that included um, quantitative methods for business. So a maths based and statistic based um, option. Uh, we did psychology, sociology, management of change, managing diversity, managing all sorts of things, um, even to the point where we had. Um, particular it's particularly in our final year our third year we were taking options where you were taught um business language and my university was very difficult to get into and had a really significant failure rate in the first year because they really worked you hard hmm. um but one of their um i suppose goals was to make sure that you stepped out of university business ready you would walk into any business and be able to speak the language, understand all the different acronyms that are based in, in business, be able to understand a, a balance sheet, marketing, branding, all those different elements, and then be able to manage a team instantly. Wow. Um, so when, when we talk about marketing, this, this happens pre-organisation. 
this happens for three years whilst you're going through university. Um, interestingly, I found myself using previous skills in a paper I read, uh, I've been writing up recently, um, where I was talking about vandalism and social responsibility. And I actually wrote the sentence, uh, turning vandalism into brandalism. <laughs> <laughs> So it's it's amazing how marketing in um, its narrowest sense is about getting someone to buy something, mm -hmm. getting them to believe that they need that brand into in order to make their life better. Yeah. Exactly. However, marketing touches every single aspect of our lives, from um, the toothpaste paste that we have when we get up in the morning, the coffee the machine the coffee's made in, you name it. Every single element of what we touch is marketing. Yeah, it's really, it, well, let's, 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 let's go ahead and define this for people so that we're super clear about what we're talking about as well, because there is, there is um, you know, I learned about all of this very, very, uh, and, and what I am sure you would consider from your educational standpoint, and I do as, too, do as well, um, a, a very simple Simon approach via L. Ron Hubbard's <laughs> writings on the subject Ooh, of, yeah. of promotion and marketing, right? And he was pretty old uh, he school. He was very good at it. He was very well, good at he kind of was, actually. I mean, if we're yeah. really going to be honest about it, you know, half of Scientology's appeal is how it has been marketed. And it is not just L. Ron Hubbard's brainchild. 100%. If, if, you yeah. can, if you can lead a group of people from nothing into believing something, You've cracked that marketing. You really have. Well, exactly. And then, and bringing it to the public over time in the 1950s, you have a, a science. It's marketed as a science, Dianetics, the modern science of mental health. Yeah. And, and this carries on through about, you know, 53, 54, 55, Scientology comes along. Um, and then it's being marketed as this sort of, uh, you know, um, well, it's in the height of the Cold War and radiation and bomb shelters yeah. and all that. So it was. So there was a lot of work by Hubbard to try to push um, uh, positive social messaging toward radiation. We can help with that. Yeah. We can, you yeah. know, we can cure people who have, you know, who have uh, had to, you know, radiation overload because this was a real fear that was hanging over yeah. everybody's yeah. head. Then in the '60s. They totally changed it up and it was new, you know, it was spiritual and it was groovy baby and it was, you know, enabling you to find your spiritual self and it was, and it really changed. And well, we, uh, would call that, we would call that in, in marketing terms, we would call that rebranding. Right, exactly. And they've rebranded many times uh, to yeah, change just, with- Just like Madonna. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To change with the times- yeah. Right. Appeal to a new set of folks, new generation, Absolutely. updated value yeah. system, different worldview. Mm -hmm. You know, really, society-wise, I don't know what would you say. Every five, ten years or so, we have a fairly major shift, even less yeah, time. Yeah, it, it usually it usually sinks uh, within brands. It's a bit um, it's 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 a bit quicker, and it's usually dependent on what the numbers are doing. But as a society, we tend to do it in chunks. And it's either um, event-based, world wars, um, economic COVID. crashes, yeah, COVID. We're seeing that now with all the Zoom meetings and everything else. I mean, Zoom was a tiny little company before the virus kicked off. And I can imagine their board meetings were like, 
holy shit, what do we do now? <laughs> That's right. That's right. And they had some pretty big adjustments to make to, to get up to speed. Absolutely. And they did yeah. it well. Good on them. You know, right. this, this will go down as text in our next generation in marketing. Um, right. How to market in the middle of a pandemic. But, um, but you can see it in all sorts of um, schools of thought, shall we sort of loosely label this, whether it's rebranding of a brand, whether it's, uh, and we've seen it with Apple, we see it with alcoholic drinks, we see it with clothing, we see it with the big uh, fashion designers, we see all that coming coming through, but also in um, medicine and in psychology. If you look at the history of psychology, the, the particular period that you're talking about, there was a shift in psychology from um, behavioral psychology you know, the sort of rats in a box kind of... Skinner boxes and stuff, yeah. Yeah, and, and Pavlov's dogs and all that stuff. Yep. To cognitive psychology, which was sort of trying to link up the, the literal cogs of the brain to see how, how that, that managed stuff. So it's really interesting to me that you say that that's with the ch- those were the changes that were going on within Scientology. At the same time, that was really mirroring the changes that were going on in psychology. Interesting. Interesting. Which is probably a really good way of um, Scientology recruiting people because we all know that within these mythological ideologies, there's always this nugget of truth somewhere. So if there was a real shift in psychology to thinking about how the brain works, and then you pull in the political, oh, and we've got the idea of the Cold War coming and has all been nuked off the face of the planet and all this stuff. It's a really good trend analysis, which is something that I used to do in a previous life where I w- we would track the flavours of soft drinks to see how we could market alcohol and mix that as a cocktail. You know, you've, you've seen, I, I don't know if it's the same in, um, uh, in, in the US, but certainly in the UK, Gin has seen a massive um, growth over the past sort of six to seven years, maybe a bit less, five to six years, where there's been a shift in gin, which had died a death, and it was something that your grandma used to have a little tipple of and stuff like that. But then all of a sudden they've come out with new flavours and new colours and new spices, and and they've put them back into these old Victorian sort of medicine-type bottles and... And again, I'm a marketer's dream because I get fascinated by packaging and ooh, it looks really like I'll pull the cork off and all this smoke will come out. And, <laughs> and it, But it's, it's the same thing that you were saying with Scientology, that you find the blend of all the different key zeitgeists of the time and you pull them together and you go, and look what we, we've done. We're just the same as them because... We know about radiation and we know about psychology and we know about this. And that's how you get your credibility built up. That's right. That's right. I, um, oh boy. So I have about a billion questions for you and things we're going to talk about here. So we could be at this for a little bit. Well, I've got I, a cup of coffee and a backup coffee. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I first became, you know, you talk about individual brand management and I first became really i think like like it really hit me how precise this can be oddly Mm. through a movie i saw 
And I don't, okay. I, I, I don't, maybe you'll remember this. I'm not, I'm not sure. There was a movie in 2011 called mm-hmm. The Adjustment Bureau. Oh, love it. Yeah. Okay, great. So Matt Damon is a politician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? And he breaks down one day and just gets really honest on stage with everybody and does a full <laughs> breakdown of yeah. the brand management, the image management, I should say, yes. of yeah. him. Yeah. The color tie. And let's and let and let's break it down because he says, okay, look, everything about what you're seeing me doing right now, mm-hmm. he's telling this audience, this live audience, he says, look, everything you're seeing right now is crafted. There is yes. nothing about what you are seeing in me or on this stage that is all, all organic, that is at all accidental. The color of my tie, the color of my clothes, the shirt that I'm wearing, whether it's buttoned or not buttoned, whether it's a collared shirt or not, uh, the (laughs) the type of shoes I'm wearing, the 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 color, not just the the words behind me, but the colors of the words behind me. I'm I'm going to stop you right there and tell you when when I was um, we had a particular image, and this goes again for any company. We had a particular image, and the image that I you see before you is certainly not the image I had then. You know, I I literally broke out of that um, particular rat race, and I've got piercings and also, and none of that would have existed in in the the corporate image. But we got our colours done. Now I don't know if you do this. Anyway, <laughs> I remember that. But- the whole the whole summer that? spring. You would thing? get all your colours and you'd be a winter or yeah, a spring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, old I'm, school. I'm a yeah. winter. <laughs> <laughs> right, me too. I'm a winter as well. Because <laughs> my mom did that crap at the seventies. They color me beautiful thing, right? So I know this was yeah. full on corporate shit. This was. This oh, wasn't wow. just like some woman. This was like this is and this is how we present the image and this is how it's going to look. Even down to the perfume that that yeah. I wore. Everything, everything was about the image wow. that you present. Wow. And you can understand why. This was a, you know, this is a 36 billion pound company. They don't want you just rocking up in your ripped jeans and like, how you doing? Unless that's how your customer functions. That's right. That's (laughs) right. Because, okay, so, so let's get down to, let's get down to brass tacks about this. Because I think a lot of people, you know, know, or I don't want to assume too much. On the part of my audience, right? I mean, I, I, you know, I'm trying to do this show to 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 show up just how controlled <laughs> this this is, and I am I of course stress, you know, coercive control and manipulation and propaganda. Okay. These are things that I consider negatives in our life. I don't consider these positives in our life. No. I I don't think we need to be talked to the way that we are talked to, and I don't think we need to be manipulated the way that we are when it comes no. to buying things. And also, no. when it comes to voting for somebody, I think that we have lost sight of, you know, the importances of, of who we are voting no. for when we are not talking issues, we are not talking positions, we are not talking policies, we're talking whether we like the guy or not. We're always talking no. in terms of their personality. Yeah. And this has become and sort of, it, it's just a juggernaut that just keeps growing. This isn't going away. It's getting worse. And yeah. that's my concern about it is because it is manipulation. And you studied psychology, sociology, as well as math and business topics. So, yeah. you know, you, you're getting into the heads of people. Oh, no, it started It started yeah. with, with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The first time I saw that mm. was in, in college. My um, qualification pre-undergrad mm-hmm. was a business and finance diploma. And the first time we saw that, uh, 
hierarchy of needs mm-hmm. was was in a business class that showed me exactly how people uh, function. So you have your basic needs, your sort of your house, your food, your warmth, all that kind of stuff, and then it builds all the way up to self actualization. That's right. Yeah, it's a, it's a for those who don't know. Let me describe quickly because we're doing you know for for the audio guys too. Imagine a pyramid. And you've got one, two, three, four, five bands to five, you know, horizontal levels on this pyramid from physiological needs at the bottom, your most basic needs, the things that you have to fulfill in order to be alive at all, to your safety needs, to love and belonging is the third tier, esteem is the fourth tier, and self-actualization is the highest tier. So those are Maslow's idea of... The, the you know the the needs of people as you as you climb the ladder there and the most successful uh, marketing tool um, is one that cuts through all of those needs ah. so one that you feel is a basic need to you because you you imagine the average late teen early 20s person now if you told them that they couldn't have a mobile phone <laughs> They would class that in that pyramid as something that they need to stay alive, to function. That's right. It would be a a physiological need for them. And actually, if you got them in a functioning MRI and told them that they weren't allowed that phone, you would probably see a trauma response. It probably has become so innate for their functioning Especially in the pandemic, you know, when they're, that's their only means of communicating with friends or whatever. So you can imagine that Apple, if they were to look at that um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they've hit every single level of the needs of a human being then to the point where self-actualization, according to their brand, and I don't know this, I'm only using previous experience and, and study to, to say this, but I imagine self-actualization is the newest phone. <laughs> exactly. Well, look at well, look at how we look at how we act as a herd, right? Oh, every right, time yeah. a new phone comes out, like every year, they have got a certain band of people, these Apple users mm-hmm. or Google people or yeah. uh, you know, whatever the latest thing They're is. Queuing, physically queuing around yes. the the thing to get the late and someone will be recording someone opening the first box out of that and oh you know it's all and it's, oh. it's absolute, yeah and it is theater <laughs> that's the, the theater of something is as important as the something itself and that's you right. can see that in whether it's alcohol with the you know crystal champagne the way that bottle looks or um various brandies that come in cut crystal glass bottles you know, so the bottle is probably more expensive for the manufacturer to buy than to, to produce the liquid inside it. Well, exactly. You know, Dan Aykroyd has a brand of gin that it comes in a skull, a crystal oh, skull. Yeah. And I bought well, you, it you, just for the crystal skull. I didn't buy it for the gin. Because <laughs> I would do the same. Right? I would do it so I could put a candle in the top right, of that. Right, exactly. I got it on my shelf right now. We drank the gin the first. I was like, yeah, the gin's okay, but look at this look bottle. At this, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? The exact same thing works for cosmetics. The exact same things work for trainers, jeans, jackets, whatever it is. You can see that self-actualization the latest Nike Air. I don't know if they still do an Air thing now, but whatever it is, the latest 
is is always going to attract a band of people that literally their self-esteem and their own self-worth will be based on putting on that latest pair of trainers or the, the taking a picture or a selfie with the latest iPhone 11, is it? Uh, probably. Um, what, or, what, yeah. What, I mean, yeah. I don't even keep up. I, I've been Android baby, but, um, but this, and this also is not, you know, let's, and, and I want to differentiate a couple things because, um, because I'm looking at, you know, and we're talking about, and, and we'll definitely be going into more detail about the propaganda aspect of this, but let's also okay. be clear that this is built on, you know, we have Laszlo's hierarchy of needs, but, you know, I can recall, I can just remember going back in school, first grade, second grade, third grade, I think basically by around third or fourth grade for mm-hmm. me here growing up in America in the 70s yeah, yeah, is when I became aware of social status, right? Yes. And the fact that some yes. kids come to school and when I was in school at this time, you guys will all laugh at this, but back in the day, right, Izod was the thing, the little alligator on the shirts. Okay. And they were, that was branded, expensive, yeah. high-quality shirts. And in fourth grade, you know, rich parents, rich kids, they're coming to school and this stuff. Well, we weren't rich, so I was affording lesser quality stuff. And this became a status symbol in now, fourth in, grade. In- Back in, in my day when I was very first studying this, this is a theory that's called self, self-identification formation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is, this is deep, deep psychology that is very, now that I'm doing psychology, it's, you can see how this is manipulation, where the actual use of something is superseded by its ability to position you in society right so the example that i was given at the time was you could go to your local supermarket is it walmart or something in in the us yep and and buy a pair of jeans uh say for like 20 dollars. i don't know if that's the case say it was 50 then. we had <laughs> we, we had an equivalent in in the uk of going to your local supermarket it was tesco at the time and and here it was 20 quid or you could go and buy a pair of Levi's that is literally a pair of jeans. It does the same thing. It keeps you warm. It protects your legs from a certain, the elements or whatever it is, all based on industrial clothing. And they would be £80. And the difference is that they've got a bit of different weave and a, a couple of rivets here and a brand name here. But essentially that brand name on the back of your, just above your backside differentiates you from the person that's bought them in Tesco. That's right. And it's a status symbol. Exactly. And that where it, that's where it comes to self-esteem. We're shifting up this basic needs. We've shifted from basic physiological need to keep warm to we've jumped up to self-esteem. And you working hard and being able to go out and buy a pair of £80 Levi's, which are probably about 160 now, takes you up to the, the self-actualization. Oh! And you know that feeling when you pull them out of that bag for the first time and you put them on. We've all had that buzz. <laughs> look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm so cool. And exactly. when you're a kid, this defines your life because, yeah. you know, social standing is is everything it, in it is school. It is in the playground. It is. It absolutely. is. Absolutely. And, and, and unfortunately, the playground of life 
kind of stays that way for the rest of your life unless yeah. you realize at some point that this is all bullshit and you're really buying I, into I remember, a whole thing. I, re- I remember. I I still am a marketer's dream, but for slightly different products now. I'm, I'm a, a big fan of stationery and fountain pens and I hunt down different colored inks and stuff like that. It's just... It's just my thing. But I remember when I was working for Diageo, we were very successful and we would get stupid bonuses at the end of the year. And to the point where I could put a bonus away and and save up to buy a house. Um, But I put some of it away and then I would blow a certain amount of it. And I remember taking £500 and thinking, I'm going to buy a pair of Gucci shoes. And I had to go to Gucci and um, get these, the, you couldn't just buy them off the shelf. You had to order them. And then there was a 12-week waiting list for you to get these. I doubt very much there was an actual waiting list. But it was that whole sort of, we make these especially for you. You know, it's all like this. It's all, and, and the theatre around it. And I remember, I only ever wore these shoes twice. <laughs> And I only got rid of them. I mean, where I live is just mud and mountains. It really is. You would never put these things on now. But I remember getting the phone call. This is well before all everyone was mad on phones and stuff to come and fetch my pair of shoes. And I walked in and I pulled this ticket out of my purse and handed it over. And it was like they came out and they unwrapped it and showed me the shoe. And I, it was the theater was actually better oh. than the yeah. yeah, there's a and light not- coming from the box and it's also <laughs> And I'm not joking. I remember putting those up for sale and thinking I'll just whack them on eBay and see w- what happens. I could have I sold them for stupid money. Wow. Far more, far more. At least well, yeah, far more. I won't tell you how much more because they'd become a collector's item and all this kind of stuff. Right. And I could have sold the same shoe. 20 times over (laughs) and this is it you know it's it's the that was my I've worked hard this year I've got this big bonus I'm going to be able to blow this stack I'm going to have these shoes made for me and that made my status for me at the time that was that moment that (laughs) exactly well, let's um, let's talk about let's talk about the business side of this for a second because you gave me some figures that absolutely blew me away. As yeah. far as when you were working for Diageo, you were marketing um, Jack Daniels. Well, the the particular number we're, we're talking about was yeah. um, one of their lead brands, um, and it was Guinness. Guinness. Um, um, so we all know Guinness. Um, bizarrely enough, not all of us drink it. And um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Guinness. My, my father was from Belfast, so it was, I think it was in my blood before I was born. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Uh, but it's a huge brand, um, and it, 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 it really did make up a huge proportion of the profit in um, Diageo, and I'm sure it still does to this day. But I remember that for mother brand Guinness, the budget was 60 million. 60 and million, and that's a year. Yes, that's yeah. that's a year, and you bl- you spent that in the year. It would be on on serious marketing, what we would call through the line marketing. So everything from we had a database of adorers of Guinness, and we had various levels of people that would join our database. 
Um, and you, if you hit Adora level, you would get things like um, the limited edition St. Patrick's Day cards that you could send to your friends to say happy St. Patrick's Day. And you would get gifts from us and certain exclusives from us. So we would keep you in that particular group. Um, because we did some research and found that in a gang of drinkers, the Guinness drinker would be the one that would lead them to a particular pub because they would have a pub that, that served it the right way for them. And, and, and I don't know if, if half of that was myth or most of it was created by us, but that's the myth in the theatre that we would spin. Um, well, I'm curious, must, how, how do you like, like getting into the and I, I'm going to dive into the weeds for just a second here, because I'm curious, you, you bring up something so specific, such a specific piece of information. How do you as a professional marketer go about determining something like that? Well, you would you have so many different layers of, of what um, determines the category of person that's a fan of Guinness. So, and you would, you would literally give them a card in a bar or you would do something on the back of a pack in a supermarket. There's various ways that you would target people that have already bought into your product. Now, again, maybe I should rephrase that, that have already bought into your brand mm. because mm -hmm. even those people that weren't particularly fond of drinking the liquid that was Guinness, they really appreciated the quality of the brand. So people wanted Guinness umbrellas, Guinness polo shirts, Guinness T-shirts. All our marketing was really clever and really cool. It was black and white because that reflected the colours of the brand. It was uh, had a hint of gold in it, but not too glitzy. It was all very classy. It was all very classic, um, but also modern. So there was you would get a, a piece of information that would ask them their name, their address, their age, their, how many pints of Guinness do you drink? Uh, what kind of other things do you like? So we would associate them with other brands. We would start building up a complete picture of, and again, this isn't specific to alcohol or the organization I was working for. This is any brand. Right. And, you, you can, you're going to find the same kind of surveying and marketing research work being done for Levi's, for Gucci, for Pepsi, for uh, ibuprofen, I guess. Yeah, you know? Ford, for Cars. Um, yep. Apple, for YouTube, for everyone and everyone. You know, this wow. is endemic. You know, this is part of our fabric. It, it really is. So this you would get all that data and you would keep those people very happy because these are the people that are really going to be your supporters without any pay, without any acknowledgement, other than that they are in a specific exclusive group that we send all these things to, that they can show their friends that they're in this exclusive group. And it was all cool and all the rest of it. Then we would do advertising in the actual bars. And when I'm talking advertising, again, it's branding. So... I remember telling you this, that there was a particular time when we figured out something called the decision corridor. Okay, so um, we found out that um, something like 80-odd percent of people, there or thereabouts, talking a while ago now, didn't know what they were going to drink before they walked into a bar. Mm -hmm. So they knew they were in a bar and they knew they were going to have some kind of alcohol, but they didn't know what it was. So we tested people to the point where you could put goggles on 
and you could pinpoint where the pupils looked. And we've done this in various psychological um, studies in, in throughout psychology. And we pinpointed exactly where people looked as and when they were walking into a bar and then how they interacted with the bar. So how, how long they, uh, where they looked when they walked into the door, what route they took, why they took a specific route, where they looked at when they were at the bar, how long they interacted with the staff, all these different elements. And then we collated that and put all our branding in those places. Right. So you would, so to give it, to, to put it in quite a, a simplistic terms, and now I've told everyone this, they will do it when, when they go out. They'll still spot it. And Deb said that. <laughs> so as, they, as you open the door, as you walk up to a, a bar, as you walk in, there's usually a space that has a bit of information. And because we read left to right, it will usually be on your left. As you open the door, there will be something as the door swings open there because your eye is watching the door swing open. The way you go to the bar, you usually go to the place where either the staff are or the till is because that means you're going to spend the least amount of time standing and it will be the quickest amount of time for you to be served. So when we found out if, if the till was at the front of the bar rather than at the back, we would intentionally try to get the anchor tap, which is the tap next to the till. So as soon as someone rocks up and stands in front of the till, the tap that they saw was Guinness. Behind them, on the optics behind the till, we would want every single one of our vodka, gin, whiskey, bourbon, whatever it is, we would want that section of where people were looking because eye level is by level. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's the marketing mantras. Absolutely. And if the till was on the back of the bar, we would put our logo on the back of the staff's T-shirt. So as the staff is serving someone else, there would be something on the back of their T-shirt that you were looking at because you're tracking the staff because you want to make eye contact so that they serve you next. Right. How how much control do you have over compliance with these things? And how also does other marketing companies or other brands are also doing the same thing? So how does the war work in, for those spaces? The dominant brand will have enough money and influence to get all those spaces. Wow. And at the time, and probably still now, that organization is the dominant brand owner. And so, do they pay the um, bartenders and, and stuff to do that? or how do... what, what tends to happen in the UK yeah. and, um, is that breweries own pubs. So our customers, we didn't own any pubs at all. Oh. So we would have a contract with a, to supply uh, another brewer that, or, or pub company that owned all these pubs. And we would say to them, we will supply you X amount of thousands of barrels or cases or whatever it is. And we will give you X amount of hundreds of thousands of marketing spend. In return for that, we want your anchor tap. We want your staff uniforms. We want the decision corridor. We want the back door of the toilets. We want this, that, that, and the other. And that's what you would build into your contract. 
Wow, that's interesting. Because I'll tell you, as a bar patron, I thought it was random. I mean, <laughs> Never in a million years is that random. It is almost an exact science. Right. It's as close to science as you can get without publishing in a journal. <laughs> wow, wow. Now, is it the same in, say, grocery stores? 100%. Right. Of course it is. Now, let me tell you something about grocery stores. Yep. And, and we used to do the, supply the grocers as well. So, um, again, I've, I've only been to the U.S., uh, I think, three or four times. And um, I noticed it, it was very similar. But as you, when you walk into a grocery store, if you usually go in. Um, if you go in and quickly, um, you'll tend to go in for the, the staple things. So milk, bread sugar, whatever, they will be as far away from the door as you can possibly be. Because to get to the milk, you've got to walk past all those lovely temptation things. That's and what right. And what they've done is they've tracked how people walk through an entire aisles before you get to the milk. What you look at and the gondola ends, the end of the shelf, that's the most expensive thing to buy if you're a supplier to these supermarkets. <laughs> you know, the you sun. say this, and I literally, before the show today, went down to King Supers and I bought some milk because we needed it. And, and guess what? what? Everything you just you said, buy? everything you just said is exactly true. It was yeah. at the back of the store. Yeah. The, the refrigerators, the milk, right? And yep. uh, and I did in walking over to get the milk because I was really only there for two things. Well, guess yep. how many things I walked out with? At least six. Ten. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I went That's to the store for three things. I walked out with ten. <laughs> See, this is, this is it. Now, let me tell you the power of the graces, right? Um, I, um, at one stage within my career in, in that industry, was working in a team that looked after the grocers. And in the UK, there was a particular brand that the grocers used around Christmas to get customers in. One of our brands, which was Bailey's. Mm -hmm. um, do, you, do you have Bailey's? Oh, yeah. Bailey's Irish Cream. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So for, for, for us, it's the drink that you would drink at Christmas. It's very creamy and delicious and it's filling and fattening and all the rest of it. And the grocers would use it as a marketing tool to get people in to buy all the other things that they weren't there to buy other than Bailey's. <laughs> so, but this particular time, and I'm, I'm specifically got, not going to mention names because I would probably get seriously sued for this. But one of the particular leading grocers decided that they were going to start a price war on this particular brand. Now, we as a supplier had a floor that we didn't want our customers selling out to beyond a, a recommended retail price because it wouldn't be fair to all the other people that we supplied. And ultimately, it would be us that would get a kick in, you know, it's if, if it goes too low. But... Um, I realized in this particular, at this particular Christmas, how, how powerful and how easily the grocers could absorb any loss because they got to the point where it was a price war between two of them. And one of them just literally went, fuck it. We're going to go beyond our actual purchasing price and we're going to, we're going to go lower. 
And we had to sort of go, well, we're not going to pay you for that. If you take that on, that is nothing to do with us. And they went, fine. And I remember going into a meeting not long after that with this particular group and saying to them, that would have cost you a lot of money. And we're talking six, seven figures a day. Wow. The, amount of, the amount of volume they were going through. Wow. And, he, and this guy said to me, I just put a penny on a pint of milk and it, and it just covers that cost instantly, the amount of milk that we sell. And the consumer wouldn't even know yep. that they the, the milk had gone up a penny. I couldn't tell you the price of milk. Could you? You bought some today. Do you know how much you spent? Yeah, it was yeah, it was like it was like three, four bucks for the gallon. But I couldn't yeah, tell but, you the but penny. You wouldn't, you wouldn't notice five cents, ten cents either no way. way that, would you? No, Not if something way. if something is three ninety seven one day and three ninety eight the next day, are you seriously gonna notice that? I mean No. You know. But you you extrapolate that across all their their products in one day, they've made any loss back in, instantly. Wow. And so that's get, how powerful this is. Yeah, they got they're running their own math and stuff. So everybody every level of this is doing its own, you know, thing mm-hmm. to sell maximum amount of product. Um yeah. where do you, you know it, so you know a lot of people will look at this and go, well, yeah, of course. Because a lot of people are trying to sell a lot of products, right? But yeah. I want to focus in on some of the deceptive practices that go on with this. Because there is a difference between just regular old telling people about your product and entering some curves into it. Okay. You know? Where do those curves come in? And, and you know, in terms of the in terms of some of the deceptive practices with this. Cause because it's, you know, it's it's not necessarily like putting things in the in the scientifically best place for people to see them, be exposed to them. You pay top dollar in order to do that. People would look at that and go, well, that's a little crafty, but it's not particularly deceptive. Well, it depends. It depends on your view of deception, really. Mm-hmm. Do, is, 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 your, is the deception harmful or not, I suppose? Right. Does it add to your well-being or does it detract? Now, that's, that's the, what the I'm reason looking I at. ask that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump ahead to, uh, well, sort of jump camps to psychology. Yes, please. In my, in my master's degree, um, my dissertation was on um, victims of sexual abuse. And this sounds very dark, but bear with me. It's it, it's it's got um it's got a, a link, um, and I, it was to do with vulnerability, resilience, and facial recognition, um, in victims of sexual abuse. Now, one of the scales I used in that research for my participants was looking at um sexual abuse, everything from um unwanted kissing and touching right through to rape. And within the questions, there were certain questions that would indicate that someone had been raped. They hadn't been given consent or whatever. But then when I asked the absolute blunt question, were you raped? They would say no. And when I first got these results, I went to my supervisor, who is now my second supervisor on my PhD, and and was outraged These people don't even know they've been raped. We should tell them. We should let them know they've been raped. And she stopped me dead in my tracks and said, if they're dealing with this and they're fine and there's nothing wrong with them, who are you to tell them that they are a victim and and shatter their life? You know, someone who might have indicated they've been raped in one question could sign this off as a bad date in another. And they're fine. 
And as a psychologist, you have to weigh up what you know and what is beneficial to that particular person. It's of no benefit to that person if I go along and say to them, do you know you've been raped? You're a victim of rape. There's no benefit to them. So I suppose it depends on if the deception is beneficial or not, because there are certain deceptions that a psychologist may use in order to get data so that they can come up with treatment to actually help people. Absolutely. Because so, sometimes you have to ask questions in very oddly yeah. worded ways in order to draw yeah. data out of people. Because if they think they've figured out what you're asking for, they're trying to please you and give you these answers. Yes, but that's absolutely. not really what you want. You want the real no. answer. So, 100%. Yeah. But there's always a dark side to everything that we do. So, let's take alcohol. So in alcohol, as I see, is something that you can use to relax or celebrate or commiserate or bond or whatever. But we all know there's a very, very dark side to alcohol, abuse of alcohol, whether that is binge drinking or um, alcoholism uh, for violence, for physical harm, all the other elements that are a dark side of that. And I, I absolutely hand on heart have to say that Diageo was the forefront, the, the forerunner and um, developer of the Drinks Aware campaign. And we were all very aware of, of, of the dark side of, of what we did. And th- a, there was a lot of social responsibility that went on and I'm sure still goes on in that organization. But, Do you, is, and that's, that's a relatively modern thing compared yeah. to how long these companies have been around and how they oh, have marketed right, their yeah. products. Well, that, don't forget that, that London Dry Gin was first v- formulated because the water in London was so bad that it was better to drink gin. <laughs> and I'm going back hund- you know, uh, hundreds and odd years now. Oh, yeah. But, America, but, too. That's why people used to drink so goddamn much before absolutely. Prohibition here in America is because it was actually better or more available than water. Yeah. But there is a dark side to everything, including marketing. Um, Now, we're shifting from something that can be joked about, such as, um, you know, putting posters on the back of toilets doors to get someone to drink a a, a vodka tonic through to um, someone um, losing their livelihood, their family, everything else to alcoholism. Right. But actually, there's also a much darker side to everything that I've joked about here, which is your experience and how you were marketed to, Mm -hmm. to find yourself in one of the most vulnerable and darkest manipulative things you could possibly get involved with. That's right. Everything to do with any kind of uh, thought reform, or decision-making, or politics, or identity politics, as we're seeing now, is marketing. That's right. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's terrifying that, that when you break it down like this. And I, I do hope that once people have, have, have watched this, they give this a bit of thought, but don't spend their life obsessing about it, because it's one of those things that once you see it, you can't unsee it. 
Exactly. And and this goes to some of what we were obviously have already been discussing the and I and I'll go back again to my um, my take on the adjustment bureau where we have this scene where we where he goes, look, I got to come clean to you guys like this is information you don't know. And you really need to know this. And this is why it's this is why informed consent is is where I draw a line in the sand as to whether you are being manipulated in mm-hmm. a in a coercive way or whether you are being manipulated in a way that you completely understand and yes. you and even agree with right i mean you yeah. you all of us manipulate the people in our lives and they manipulate 100%. us yeah it, it, this is just human relations you know it's just a word manipulation you are trying yeah. to control somebody else in some fashion yeah. but you know, when you know what's going on, when you understand the relationship, when you are completely all in on the relationship, you know, father, son, that yes. relationship is established. Now, the father can manipulate the son in many ways. The son can manipulate the father in many ways, you know, dad, with, that, the, with that's, the eyes. That's, and Yeah, oh, that's, but that's, that, that's, again, that's something that, that we need to be aware of because that's how we survive as a species. Exactly. You know? Exactly. You, you, it, it's give and take, it's negotiation, it's manipulation, it's whatever you want to call it, but that is how we survive as as a species. That's right. So so for me, the business of informed consent here is this line in the sand. And and so if you understand that all these factors are at play and trying to sell you things, then you can be a more intelligent voter, more intelligent consumer. And that's really the effort here with this podcast, yeah. right? Because we're not going to end marketing tomorrow. I mean, who are we kidding, um, right? This isn't going to stop. But And, and, if, and to it, be honest, some of it is fun. Some of it is oh, really yeah. fun. Absolutely. And it, and, it, and it adds to your day. You know, if, <laughs> if, if, if you're going out shopping and it gives you a thrill and it's not harming you and you can afford it, good on you. Go and get your thrill. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have high-quality stuff or to show off or any of that. It, yeah. is, it is, are you being manipulated in ways you don't understand, you, can, you, you do not control because you're not even aware of the fact that it's happening? Yes. That's where I have a problem with this stuff. So in the um, in the effort to sell people things, we get these studies done and we have, you know, surveying and focus groups. And I'd like actually to hear what the full range of this stuff is. Mm-hmm. But like, for example, the colors that get used, right? Different oh, cultures. Huge. Color wheel has amazing amounts of significance attached to it, depending on what yep. culture you're in, what part of the world how you were raised, how the, the values of the culture. In China, the color yellow means something very different from what it means in the United States, for example. Yep. So you know these things as a marketer. You deal with this stuff. But but when you are walking into the bar or you're looking at the commercial or whatever, and the very colors that are used are so analyzed and figured out to be maximal impact on you, and you're not even aware of that, I think there's a little bit of a problem there. There, there is, and and again, if we switch it to the political arena. Oh yeah. When you you know go back to the adjustment bureau. Yep. That when 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 he, you know, there's, there's a lot of films that that really do tell a story. That if you just if you focused on it, you'd think, crikey, <laughs> you know that is so. It's either 
you know, the, the Matrix is one that I always talk yeah. about and, and stuff like that. But ev everything down to their hand gestures. So you'll find that people point as when they say a certain word and then they give words, they, their body language. And that's absolute pure psychology. The, the, the way that person will, they, they'll have someone in there that says, don't say that word in that manner because and and you if you go back to some of the earlier um speeches that Hillary Clinton gave you'll see how she's she really is very very forceful and then you'll see her hands if if you could take little snippets of all these and just put them together of when she's speaking you would see how her hand gestures change and that isn't natural development that is a marketer or an analyst or a psychologist going, no, if you point, that's aggressive. But what if you give the word, if you push the word like that, or if you offer them the word and they choose to take it, and if anyone doesn't believe me, <laughs> seriously, this is the level that they will have a linguistics expert in there that analyzes the way they speak, the tone of voice, right. the length of pause before they move on to the next sentence, the, 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 the frown that they use when they're talking about degradation, the greatness that they talk about when they, if we win, we will give you all this. I'm, I'm not joking. It's, it's almost like the Oscar goes to. That's right. It, that's exactly right. And, and people need to, the, the whole idea of what you were saying, right, when he says, you know, I've got someone saying this, this colour behind me, this. Whatever you see on the screen is smoke and mirrors. There, there is not a personality there. As much as they might put a tweet out or a selfie and you think, oh, I'm really getting to know that person. Bullshit. You know, it's, it's not. You can... I imagine the casual selfie is more orchestrated <laughs> than anything else. You know, like, well, just one more button, but put, put the silver earring in and not, not the gold earring because you don't right. want to be too affluent when you're presenting this. And, and this is the level. They will have teams of people behind them analyzing, well, that jumped three points when she had this blue skirt on, that dropped two points when he had the red tie on with the black stripe. So maybe if we just put a navy blue in there and this will be the conversations. And it is brand management. It might as well be Guinness. It might as well be iPhone. It might as well be the new Nike red flash one <laughs> that's right that's right and correct me if i'm wrong but i am positive this same thing occurs with the royals 100 percent. right you, know, even... you can guarantee you can guarantee that amongst all the um ralph lorenz and everything else there'll, there'll be a, a a street brand um i know that that kate for example will often wear like h&m brand and it'll sell out so fast because she's one of us right. and she's wearing the brand. And I can guarantee that that street brand will have made amount more millions than the Versace that she wore the day before because Versace is going to get bought by five people, but three million people are going to go out and buy that tea dress that's 20 quid. Right, <laughs> right. And how is it, how is it arranged for Kate 
to make that public appearance in that H&M outfit? I mean, is this just some choice she makes one fine morning or is this... Never in a million years. Right. This I, is I, a don't, contracted... I don't know for sure. This is, this is speculation, but you can guarantee it'll depend on who she's going to see, what, how, how um, there's... If there's something going on politically, if there's something going on in the mainstream, if there's something going on with inside the royal family, um, if there's uh, a financial crisis or a virus or a new law or a uh, another election coming up, it will all change, and and it will be splat. It will be the headline. <laughs> you know, it's like oh, one of us, and you're thinking never been one of us, never shall be one of us. Maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe that's just a bit of mythology to drag us as as an escape method out of our day-to-day humdrum existence. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that. You know, that we could be like Kate. I could go and buy that dress and be like Kate. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because it's one piece of a larger mosaic or puzzle. Right. And this is where I kind of lose my patience with um, conspiracy theorists because they're so simple, Simon, and they're thinking about how we are manipulated. There's zero question about it. There's all kinds of things going on. We are drip fed information. Right. We're drip fed information. We'll never know the whole story. Exactly. So so those are true things. But my (laughs) my problem is that whole thing with Kate is one of potentially a thousand, fifteen, two thousand things that are going to cross your line of vision or cross into your life on a daily basis. Yeah. That is that is that is pushing you in a certain direction, right? Oh, Kate's 100%. one of us. Well, now yeah. you have this idea that this royal family member, this intensively, insanely rich person who will never want for anything in their life is just like never. you. And they're yep. not just like you. They have nothing to do with you. They have nothing to do with the <laughs> values of your life. But you have this little tiny piece of information that just goes right into the subconscious. You don't even analyze it. Well, it's you almost as if it's not, it's not really that we want um, in, a, in a brand management situation, it's not really that we want people to be like us. It's the possibility that we could be like them. Well, exactly. Exactly. So, so that's one of, say, 2,000 influencers that hits you on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, Ted Cruz's campaign might be another one, and something Trump says might be another one, and Johnson & Johnson commercial might be another one. You are being bombarded by this stuff. And so it push-pulls, push-pulls, push-pulls you subconsciously into a way of thinking about things. And Mm -hmm. where that way of thinking is going to go is a little random depending on what you're exposing yourself to, what echo chambers you choose to live in, and how you go about getting your information. So this is how... It's not as random as you think. (laughs) Well, that's that's the thing, right? Is it's like then then you're really... Being at the, you know, you're you can like you can kind of imagine it a little bit as a buoy on a on a on a turbulent ocean, mm. you know, and you're kind of being rocked by all these different waves of influence that are hitting you. But then, is it so also, random, or are you actually being yeah. pushed in a direction? You see? It's um, you're being mismanaged by your brain. <laughs> there um, we go. 
Okay. <laughs> because the brain functions on um, in what we call in psychology heuristics, and they're essentially shortcuts that um, we develop really quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, to give you a really simple example, you will have a routine that when your alarm clock goes off, that you will have followed for years. To where, um, so I know, uh, to give you a little bit of insight into my life, I cannot move really uh, to do anything without a coffee. I need a mouthful of coffee before I do anything. So that's the first place I head in the morning. I head downstairs to the kitchen to get a coffee. Then my routine starts. And I will have a, a certain routine of, how I shower, how I brush my teeth, how I dress, what I put on first, what I put on last, where I pick things up before I can get out the door. Everybody has exactly the same routine in various different parts of their lives. We don't think about it. I can't remember the last time I thought about how to drive. I get in my car, I start it, I put it in gear, I go. I don't think about it. Yep. And your brain does that because it takes a lot of effort to think. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of energy. Yep. You can burn up glucose and sugars in no time at all. So you don't want to be like having to feed yourself all the time because you're constantly on. So your brain reacts to certain things, unknown things that are important to you or surprises or things like that. That's right. In In fact, let's be clear that the body budget for the brain is about a third of the energy that your body is consuming. I mean, Absolutely. it's, that, it's thing- that much just to get this thing going. So if you ever wonder why it's hard to think or oh, hard to was- engage and stay engaged for long periods yeah. of time, it's literally because you are consuming as much energy as you could be out digging a ditch or playing a football game or something yeah. just by the Perfect. act of thinking. And if uh, you're not eating right, if you're slightly under the weather or your yeah. sleep pattern's screwed up, forget it. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It's, it's, yeah, you, and you know it. You know if you've had a bad night's sleep because you wake up and you just you go like almost like a behind perspex for the entire day. It's done. Hey, everyone. I wanted to take this opportunity to talk to you about a service that I am endorsing and that I truly, truly believe in. And that service is called Better Help. H-E-L-P, BetterHelp, and they are available through BetterHelp.com. And this is a service that connects you with a licensed professional counselor online so you can get help with depression, anxiety, stress, or just somebody to talk to in this very, basically, very troubled times that we're living in right now. It is not easy to get out there in the big wide world right now. It is not easy to get out and see therapists or counselors. It is not easy to find counselors or therapists who can help you. And this is what BetterHelp was designed to assist you with. The simplicity of this is you go to the site, you sign up, actually you use the link <laughs> that I have provided below, uh, which is betterhelp.com slash Chris Shelton, and you get signed up, and this can be for as little as $40 a week, and they actually even have uh, financial aid available. You enter some information, fill out a questionnaire about yourself, and you get hooked up with a counselor that will help you out. And this can be via text, via voice, or via a video. 
okay? Any one of those. It's up to you and your comfort level. And if the therapist that you get connected with isn't doing the job that you feel you need, you can ask for and get a different counselor. So there are a lot of options for you in this, and it is really something that I think a lot of my viewers should be taking advantage of. I have talked often about the need for or the help that you can get through professional counseling. Sometimes you need somebody who really does know what they're doing and not just a friend or family member to listen. And that's why this service is something that I am happy to put out there for you guys. So again, use the link below, betterhelp.com slash Chris Shelton. That is in the description to this video. And I hope that you um, can get the help that you might need from this service. Let me know how it goes. But also the brain's very good at protecting itself. Yep. It will sacrifice limbs to protect itself. That's right. <laughs> and I'm, I am not kidding there. It, it really will. Um, so you, there's, there's a book. I uh, uh, can't remember the guy's name just because I'm chatting, but there's a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, uh, Kahneman? Uh, Richard? Yeah, yeah, Kahneman, is it? Yeah, something like that? yeah, yeah. Um, I, I can't recommend highly enough to read that book or get the audio. Daniel, Daniel Kahneman. That's it. Yep. Um, he it is immense to show you how the brain really fucks itself up. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. so you um, you take things in via your vision constantly, thousands of things constantly. If I actually just take note of what's around me now, I work off two screens. I've got a notebook here. I've got my phone there. I've got my planner there. I've got a, all sorts of information in front of me, but I don't see it. I'm talking to you. It's right. there in my periphery, but I'm constantly taking it in. I know it's there if I get asked questions about it or, or whatever. But those things that are on the periphery go in like um, like fast food. If you take a burger in, you don't really, you don't savor that burger. It's just like, feed me. I need fuel. That's right. And it goes in and it burns off, but you know it's there and it has an effect because you have a calorific input, but you're not really aware of it. I have walked and eaten and got to a point and forgotten what I've eaten yep. <laughs> because we've all done it. We've even driven places and got there and thought, shit, I can't, I can't remember getting here. Because you've been focused on something else and, and you go into that autopilot. That's right. Or the, or the classic example of walking into a room and forgetting why you went in there. Oh, gosh, all the time. All but, the time. Uh, <laughs> all the time, right? Your body, literally, I, I'll be in the living room, up, and then I will find myself in my studio. And I'm like, wait a minute, why did I come in here again? And you have to go back out again and start all <laughs> Exactly. Again. Then yeah. you got to, yeah, because there's spatial memory and stuff. It's funny. It's, uh, absolutely. That's right. But all that is open to suggestion. And we all take it in every single day. Um, magicians use it. Darren Brown is a classic for this. Yep. And he's got such a psychological background in the way he thinks things through, how he he has his very own decision corridor when it comes to these influences and suggestions. And the power of suggestion is called the power of suggestion for a purpose. And it's all these various different things. Um, I can give you a perfect, uh, very personal example of something I heard you say mm -hmm. on, uh, I was listening to an interview. No, you were giving a lecture somewhere mm. and you were saying that as you, as a teenage boy, you got sucked into Scientology because 
you went to a communications course. Yep. You were the typical 15-year-old socially awkward boy that wanted to talk to girls. Correct. <laughs> Correct. They are abundant. <laughs> I have two of them knocking around my house. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and they are very awkward and very clammy, but they're desperate to talk to girls. Yep. So um, we all know of them, but in that particular situation, and I remember sort of sitting back and watching this and thinking, yeah, and there's a lot of psychological things that are set up in in these kind of um, areas. Um, The, again, I can't remember the name, you know, the INSP letters that people put after the name, they'll have done a matrix where... They'll say, I, I'm an introvert, extrovert. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of hate those things, but yeah. Well, there's, there's a four letter. There's like yep. a, a grid of 16 boxes and you will go across extrovert and down this and along that and you'll come up with this four letter indicator. Yep. I've done that as part of management training. And actually, now I've looked at it as a psychologist, you actually tell them everything that they need to know to give you that answer. Of course. And it's... It, And it's exactly the same with the power of suggestion that, you know, you tell people a lot of things or or things are so broadly framed that it would it would hit 40 percent of the population. Right. That's why the generalities of the Scientology personality test, for example, to bring it back to that. Right. Because the answer, the test results you get are based on a band of Mm -hmm. a test score that you get on multiple personality points, introversion, extroversion, responsibility, irresponsible, communication, introverted. And we've done it on, there's even things like complete a finisher, uh, procrastinator, all those kind of things. We've all done it. And we all go, oh yeah, that's me. Because you find the experience that you've had to fit that model. Exactly, exactly. Because we give authority to people. and you were saying about that they'd said, oh, well, you know, you have difficulty communicating to girls, with girls. And literally the phrase in my head was, no shit, Sherlock, yeah, right. 15-year-old boy. <laughs> exactly. But to me, in my... As a 15-year-old in my... boy, you're like, oh, you understand me so much. Exactly. Because <laughs> I'm sitting there not communicating about this to anybody. Yeah. I'm not no. telling my mom. But you don't I'm not think telling... you are. No, I'm you not telling my you friends. Are, but your very being is. Your exactly. very 15-year-old teenage boy is communicating that. Exactly. Just like, I, and, and in my field, I have a big issue with the big industry that I, I is the domestic abuse industry, mm. where they, they sweep up women, this is usually for, and say to them, a big bad man did this to you because he's a big bad man. And the victim goes, yes, all men are big, bad men. You know, and it, and it, it's that ideology. If, yeah. if you think you can find, if you give authority to someone, and again, this is an example. I've stopped telling people at parties that I'm a psychologist. <laughs> because, you know, you have that small talk when someone introduces you. And you go, oh, how are you? Yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. Oh, what do you do? And when I'd say... Oh, I'm a PhD candidate in psychology. I'm, I'm essentially a psychologist in training. They would either tell me every deepest, darkest secret ever, right. or they would run away and think I could read their minds. Right. That's right. That's right. It's hilarious. And I don't want to know your deepest, darkest secret. Exactly. I'm out for the night with my husband having a few drinks. <laughs> exactly. I, I. Yeah, you're looking around the party going, I... 
does I, I don't see a couch here. I'm not, yeah, I, I don't see. I can, I can bill you for these hours if you like. Uh, right. But, yeah. You know, all uh, people say, am I a psychopath? <laughs> <laughs> and I always go, do you think you're a psychopath? <laughs> Have you done something psychopathic? But, um, but so, but I could say to them, if someone asked me that question and I am bound by ethics, so I would never do this, even as a joke. Mm. Um, I might have done it with my husband a couple of times. <laughs> um, but um, someone would ask me the question, am, am I okay? And if I wasn't that ethical, I could fuck them up to no end, purely because I've told them I'm a psychologist. That's right. And giving someone that level of authority is phenomenal. And in psychology, there was um, a, a famous study. Um, is it the Millam study? Milgram, Milgram's. The, Milgram study, yeah. that's it. Yeah. Where they tested people on compliance. That's right. And it, it was because of um, all the stuff that happened in the world wars, in the concentration camps. And the idea that if um, that anyone could be that cruel, and, and we know the absolute atrocities, seriously sickening atrocities that people caused. And it was very difficult to, for anyone who considered themselves to be normal to consider that they would ever do that. But you put a white coat on someone with a pair of glasses and a clipboard and a pen, and you tell them to press a button that they know is causing someone pain or they perceive someone's caused pain. And you give them, in this particular study, there was a point that said, you have to punish someone if they don't answer this question or they don't do these things. And you punish them by this electric shock. You press this buzzer, buzz, and in another room, someone that you have met but now cannot see suffering is going to get an electric shock. And the first ones are very little. And then it gets to the point where the other person is an actor but the the participant who's actually um, giving the person an electric shock doesn't know they're an actor. That's right. Everybody in the scenario is acting except the guy Apart who's giving the shock. Apart from this shots. person who's actually pressing the buzzer. That's right. He doesn't and realize he's the subject of the experiment. No, not at all. And this is where deception comes in when you're looking to get experiments. That's right. <laughs> you don't tell them that everyone else is acting in this particular scenario. That's right. But people pressed the lethal shot. People did it because, and people were absolutely uncomfortable doing it. Some people weren't, but some people were absolutely uncomfortable doing it. And they were told, you have to press that buzzer by someone in a white coat and a clipboard. That's right. And they did. So the level of compliance within humans, the level of connection that we want to have with other humans the way we hope people understand us and get us and want to help us and be part of our gang will often override that horrible feeling that you have in your stomach when thing is, something isn't right, that gut feeling that we all talk about. The amount of people that will have died because they didn't trust their own gut feeling or didn't want to offend somebody. Because I, I remember... Um, uh, uh, a psychopath uh, saying they knew when the person that they were about to harm 
knew that the situation had gone bad. Yep. They, they saw that recognition in that person's face, but they also knew that that person would still comply with what they wanted. That's right. The fear it... of being rude. The fear of actually upsetting someone and saying, I'm not coming with you. I think you're a bit dodgy. So if you're going to teach anyone to be safe, tell them to listen to that little alarm bell right. that goes off in their tummy. If, if, if someone gets upset about it, you can apologize later, but at least you'll be alive to apologize. Well, exactly. And that's and that's social conditioning, right? Yeah, and, totally. And, and depending on how you were raised and depending on the, the compliance demands that your parents instilled in you or, say, your local church or school moms or whatever, you know, are, are laying in on you will determine the level of social compliance you're going to generally go towards. Plus, I'm sure there's probably some natural... Uh, you know, genetic in inclinations there well, too. Again, survival. You want to be part of a group. Exactly. You know, you want to be in. You know, back in back in the the killing fields, as it were, the there was protection by being accepted into a group. If you were out on your own, you'd probably get eaten by a saber toothed tiger or something. Mm -hmm. Your easy pickings. Um, but in your scenario, as a fifteen year old awkward boy. Someone telling you, oh, you're a 15-year-old awkward boy is like, oh, you understand me. And then you get pulled in. That's right. And then all of a sudden you're within a group that understands you. And, and I can imagine that the course was set up in a very simplistic way, that if you followed these steps, you could, you know, you would feel like you've done something. And then you get this sort of, and now you've got a certificate. You've, you've passed this particular course. And it reminds me of um, in The Wizard of Oz when they pull the curtain back and they find out that it's just a bloke and he gives the tin man this heart and he takes it and he goes, oh, now, I, now I've got a heart. And he gives the straw man his diploma and he gives the, the, the cowardly lion uh, a medal and all of a sudden he's got that medal so he's brave. You give someone a certificate that says, now you can communicate and all of a sudden you're a communicator. That's right. But if you want to be a master communicator, go and do the next one. So you get pulled in a little bit further. And then you want to do, now you need a degree in communicating, but not just communicating. Now you need the other part of that as well. And slowly, slowly, you get pulled in and pulled in. And, but now you, you know it, you're an expert in it. And you've become the manipulator that was once manipulated. That's right. That's how it works. And there's, I've um, recently started talking to um, a, a doctor, Debbie Garrett, in Australia. She did um, some work for um, in the dominant narrative in the abortion services. And she came up with a theory that, uh, and is still in development of this theory, called alarmist gatekeeping. Hmm. And she talks about how knowledge is kept by the dominant narrative and how it is filtered and assigned to certain groups. So in your instance, for example, you completing this course means that there's been a, a little drip drip of indoctrination there, and the knowledge has been um, passed over to you. So you've, you've got this, and again, you'll have developed, oh, I've got this knowledge, I've got this, I've, I've achieved something. Meanwhile, the other knowledge that would negate that is kept away from you. That's right. That's right. So it needs to be, this isn't just a one strategy. This is a many layered 
and filtered strategy in order to bump you down from this very wide gate where you could have turned around and gone back. They just, it's never zero to a thousand. It's little, little baby steps, little, little baby steps. And before you know it, you're right in the center of the lion's den. That's right. Let me, um, you brought up a couple of things here that I, that have sparked my curiosity about the, about the basics of product placement, marketing, human manipulation, even right. Mm-hmm. Um, need to conform, right. Social yeah. conditioning, um, the desire to get along social hierarchies, the existence of which, you know, o- over sort of umbrellas, all of us, we, there are, there mm-hmm. are no human beings who live in a vacuum. And so we have to learn and adapt to the social hierarchies that we are going to be in. And then we learn the rules of those hierarchies, i.e. our culture. And that's how we get through life and navigate through these things. And I wonder, these are very fundamental principles to human existence, any human existence, right? Mm -hmm. There is no human that's outside of a social hierarchy. For example, even if you're an Aborigine in Australia, you've still got your community yeah. And and these things and compliance is still a factor. Yeah. Um, you know, social agreements are still a factor. You know, manners, etiquette, the the lubrication yeah. of those social relationships is kind of how I think about manners and etiquette is sort of like the grease that keeps everything going. Absolutely. So these are key factors that we could say are applicable to any human being, uh, based mm-hmm. on how we've you know evolved. Would you say that? It seems to me that a lot of the principles we've been talking about leading up to this point in the conversation are building on those truths, those Mm -hmm. fundamentals. Are there other fundamentals you're aware of that are just as base that are that are just, you know, how we are, just truths that Mm -hmm. marketing and manipulation is built on? Yeah, it's that in group. um, Ah, in group, out group. Mm. Yeah. And this and that is. That is really essential. So let's take telephones. Um, I do actually have uh, an iPhone. It's an iPhone 7 because the rebellion in me will not buy a new phone. And guess what? It still and works I, and you can still I, talk I, to I'm people. I'm just calling it vintage, vintage <laughs> iPhone. Um, but there's, um, there's, there's two sort of dominant groups in that um, operating system. It's Apple and it's Android. And... That in and of itself is an in-group, out-group example of branding, okay? But you'll see it across the board. Guinness, for example, is very much an in-group, out-group marketing strategy because dark stout isn't the drink of choice when you first go out to a bar. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in the UK, you, you only have to be 18 to go out, although most people start off a bit younger. But you wouldn't walk into a bar necessarily and your first pint of beer would be Guinness. It would tend to be a lighter, easier, on the palate sort of drink until you make it cool, until you make it exclusive. And until we actually say things like, you have to have at least four pints before you get you acquire the taste this is a mature taste it's how you spin it what we're actually saying there is oh god the first time you drink this you're gonna think it's fucking horrible (laughs) but the way we've spun it is it's a mature palate it takes you know you you your your palate matures and and you really are one of the people that knows their their drink that you know that you can be a real 
appreciator of beer if you drink Guinness. And all we're thinking is, shit, we've got to get them over the first hurdle so that we get them hooked into this. <laughs> Do but, people sit around in conference rooms, like blue spark meetings on this stuff or is this just individual oh, yeah. ideas that oh no. i know how to do this or like how does no, this how does this get done strategy. it's a strategy i remember being in meetings where we would give each individual brand its personality yeah so we would smirnoff vodka a personality now there's many layers to smirnoff right from the basic red right through to blue and the blues you sort of premium. And so you would talk about, um, Smir- I would talk about uh, within our group, our meeting of Smirnoff as a person. Um, Smirnoff helps you unwind on a Friday night. It's your gateway into the weekend, blah, blah, blah. It's, uh, it brings out your super me. So essentially what we're saying <laughs> is you have a few vodkas, you don't really give a fuck anymore and you just say what you think. <laughs> That's your super me. <laughs> That's right. So you can you can see the way this is spun. But essentially, we then create this persona, and humans are very good at that. We see faces in all sorts of things. We see the the face of Christ on a shroud, or or a piece Elvis of toast. on a piece of Elvis on toast and That's stuff. Right. <laughs> all the time, man. You know, we it's, it's we do it. It's, it's part of the way our brain is made up to recognise faces, and we fill in gaps. It's, it's actual cognition. It's the way we think. Yep. But we we would then use the personality of Smirnoff to market that campaign, to target a particular per, ga- group of people, eighteen to twenty five year olds. Uh, we would give them their their occupation their learning capacity, their education, we would absolutely fine-tune the target market. And then we would do all adverts for them, where we would place that product, what particular bars we would place that in. So, for example, Smirnoff Blue would go into high-end bars that had vodka lockers, where you would buy a bottle for your table, but you wouldn't necessarily drink it all at the same time in one hit, but you would keep it and you would have your own vodka locker there that you've spent stupid amounts of money on buying a bottle of vodka (laughs) do you see what i mean so you would build up a complete persona of a brand and then that would be your in-group that would be your group and anyone that doesn't drink that in the exact same way as your little animal in the schoolyard you were in the out group because you couldn't afford that particular um, brand and all the in-group would stand together huddle and laugh and point that's right. It's exactly, exactly the same thing for any other brand as adults. Isn't it hilarious how this in-group, out-group thing, I mean, it will literally set up antagonisms and mm-hmm. and um, and a, and a, a relationship status. Yes. You know, because I was bullied in school based on the clothes I was wearing. It was that see, stupid. But you, you know? see how that creates bonds in an in-group as oh, well. Oh, yeah, very much so. Because yeah, there's the in-crowd. You know, terrifyingly, you can see it with identity politics. Oh, yeah. Very much you know, so. And, and it's, it's very – I wrote a blog um, back end of last year as a kind of tongue-in-cheek thing. I, I get a lot of abuse from feminists for the, the research that I do. I, I research domestic abuse as a um, public health issue, um, not as a um, men against women issue because it really isn't based on evidence. And so I I get a a heck of a lot of abuse 
and they have their own language to abuse me. Um, and it will be um, exactly the same. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's from an American feminist, a British feminist, everything else. But I am uh, one of those one of those wrong women. I'm not in the sisterhood. I'm quite happy not to be in the sisterhood. But they will have they will bond over abusing me. Right. And, uh, and that is again almost. I, I I say well, someone always has to be the wicked witch. And you can see it in every part of culture across every part of the world. You always have uh, a wicked witch or uh, a wicked um, whoever that is the the person that they all have to fight against. You know, it's right. uh, if it's male maleficent or the wicked stepmother or wh whoever it is, That's there right. always has to be someone who is the evil one in order to get the group to bond <laughs> no that's true because people will coalesce for common cause and if they believe yeah. that i mean that's that's that is exactly how in group out group works and and this is and so again this is brilliant because this is another uh, very very basic fundamental to human behavior every human does it there is no avoiding it there's no getting and away again from it. that was based on survival you need right. to keep a certain number of people in your in group and you had to other the out group that's right. and the reason you had to other them is if we go back to evolutionary psychology, the again in the killing fields, resources were few. Yep. So either you had to protect your resources and not share them with the other group, or you had to send in your fighters to decimate the other group so you could steal their resources so that your DNA could flourish. That's right. You know, this is this is absolute basic species survival shit <laughs> exactly and we see this in primates not just humans we have oh, yeah. we have chimp troops that form yeah. border patrols yeah and they will have, go and rip you know that, that kill other um groups and eat them yep. to survive right. you know this is you know nature isn't butterflies and dandelions nature is brutal it is unbelievably brutal that's right it's, it's, and and you have we think we're sophisticated because we have iphones and big tvs and we can talk to each other on zoom and all that stuff yeah if, if we went back into nature we'd last about five minutes <laughs> yeah it's really it's it's quite it's quite something but these but these psychological principles or these cultural or or basic species principles are um are the things that this that this whole sort of industry are built on and um and i and i find it fascinating because it is the understanding and manipulation of these principles that allow that, that have created sort of organically grown much of the way our society is these days. And it's, okay. and it's, you know, it's grown to a place now where it, I believe um, it is grossly overcomplicated for the average human being to be able to deal with modern society. I think we have gone beyond our capacity to understand our environment and we have overcomplicated our, our world. To, and I, and I think there are um, nefarious and unnefarious reasons for that. You know, it's not all like some big dark and I, plan. And I, think, I think some some of it is um, unrealized consequences. Yeah. No one there's there's a film. Is it um, Wally, where 
he the, the cartoon you know that there's a little robot called wally oh wally um, yeah 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 wally that's right yeah. and um he goes he gets found by that other robot yep and then they go up to the ships of all the humans that that escaped hers and everyone's really fat mm -hmm. in a chair looking at a screen all the time drinking things and i remember seeing that and thinking oh shit you can walk down any high street now and literally see people with <laughs> a super size whatever and people i dodge people that are just literally looking at a screen exactly <laughs> do do not look up to even recognize their environment they are plugged in and i'm not judging people because i'm as plugged in as, as they are although I do tend to look up and see where I'm walking. But we are plugged in and we are plugged into our choice of bubble. Right. And I say that um, I'm going to go back to my undergrad. As part of my undergrad dissertation was called, and this is just so convoluted and pompous, it's unbelievable. Does the work of news producers affect the social construction of reality? Okay. <laughs> and I wrote thousands of words that essentially said, yes. <laughs> so, but one of the findings, and I'm talking, um, I, I was at doing my undergrad and I didn't have an email address. This is how long ago I'm talking about here. The internet was in its infancy when, when I was finishing my undergrad. But essentially, I looked at how newspapers produce news. And at the time, um, I found, to my astonishment, only because I'd never entered into that field, that newspapers don't have to advertise for new journalists because journalists gravitate and will literally contact a newspaper that they want to write for without any effort from that newspaper. They'll recruit uh, interns and freelance journalists and all sorts of stuff. And I'm talking about when media was in its newspaper form was at its absolute pinnacle. And so you get people that are already of the newspaper's opinion that are gravitating towards that newspaper. So that, that view of that newspaper never gets challenged. It never alters outside of its bubble. So it's already attracting people into its in-group. Right. And it produces news for the in-group that already buy that newspaper because they want confirmation of their own opinion. Right. So you've and got you, this, and you found this. You found this with newspapers pre or at dawn of pre, internet. Pre all this, pre all this stuff. So you right. imagine that this was at the time when you had to make an effort to go and walk down to the newspaper stand or shop and get coins out of your purse and pay for your newspaper. Go home, sit down, open a newspaper, and read it. This wasn't like two minutes in your face, video, picture, couple of headlines. Yep. So that was when people were making that choice of what opinion agreed with their opinion. And again, we're looking at the, the Maslow's hierarchy. This is when people start getting to self-esteem. Well, of course I'm right. This newspaper agrees with me. This newspaper reflects everything I think about society. So they're being fed it and it's being fed in the way that, you would feed a junk food addict junk food, a sugar addict 
sugar, a, a, a drug addict a drug. You feed them the stuff that they crave. No one rarely goes and buys a newspaper that disagrees with their opinion exactly. unless you're a researcher, you know. You don't waste your money. So now we can do this on an instantaneous level. If, some, if you don't agree with me, I can literally Google something which didn't exist in the vocabulary till a few years ago. You can go and Google something that will will absolutely agree with what you're saying. Yep, that's right. And, and, that's, and that's that how they, they, and it's so it's so the so the situation or the picture here is we've always had echo chambers. We've always had people oh, gravitating right. towards, but what we have with the internet is an escalation because well, of the ease of use. Yes. And, and the speed of delivery and the dissemination of the information being so much more broad. Yeah. You don't There's, have to take the coins, go to the corner, pick up the paper. You just got to pick up your phone. Well, let, there's, there's a scene in another film. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think films are like the storytellers of, of our past. Yep. They reflect a lot of the, the zeitgeist in society called Swordfish with... Yes, um, Hugh Jackman and John Travolta. Yeah, yeah, and the opening scene of that is they're all at a bank, there's a bomb going off, and it's all very Matrix in the way that everyone's like slow motion and stuff. Yep. And John Travolta delivers a diatribe that yes. says, I will do this, and it will be on CNN, this, that, and the other, within X amount of seconds, blah, blah, blah. And this happens all the time. And our confirmation biases are actually our heuretics that I talked about previously, are constantly filtering the information that goes into us. And one of the, one of the most simplistic confirmation biases is the first thing you see is the first thing you believe. That's why if you've got kids and two of them are falling out, they fight to get to you first. And whoever says it first, you go, did you do that? And you will base everything that you say, the next part of your um, actions on whoever got the story to you first. So I can I can do that instantaneously. You and I can, can, can fall out on a fact. And now where I, in my undergrad, had to walk to a library, go through a book, find the article. If they didn't have the article, I'd have to go to a librarian who had to order me the article that might get to me in two weeks' time. Meanwhile, we don't give a shit about that (laughs) argument anymore. Now I can go, bear with me, I'll just access the world's internet database on every article ever written, peer-reviewed on anything that will, and I will find one that agrees with me because there will always be something that agrees with me. And I don't care about your counter argument because I've got the evidence. Exactly. Look, this is now it's law. Now I've got the truth. And if you're two seconds behind on your Google search, whoever's watching will go, well, they got the evidence before you. That must mean it's right. <laughs> exactly. Top of the Google search. So, absolutely. That's yeah. right. That's right. And that's why and how one of the key ways, I believe, at least, um, that the Internet has exacerbated the problem. It's not it didn't create the problem. I don't believe the Internet really created too many problems psychologically. But I do believe that we have built a machine that exacerbates psychological problems. And we've built it in such a way that there is no control or filter. and, and And the constant fight is, should there be? And if there should be, and I think most of us agree that there should be, the problem becomes, well, who decides? 
Well, yeah. Right. I, referring back to that, I was I was saying that I was uh, I wrote a, a tongue in cheek blog mm-hmm. called Seven Reasons Why Feminists Need CBT," <laughs> and it was in <laughs> it was in um, it got a massive hit, but um, it was in response to um, a, an interview I'd seen on an Australian um, station of uh, a feminist uh, that lives in America called Mona Elta Horway. And she'd released a book of the seven sins of men or women or something. It was something like seven. So I just responded, they always have seven or something. Um, it's a magic so, number. Uh, but yeah, but it, it's, it's absolutely reflective if, if anyone wants to read that of any kind of identity political group in group, out group. And one of the things in there is dichotomous thinking. And it's a very fancy way of going, I'm right, you're wrong. And there is no nuance here. If you don't believe in my ideology, you are the enemy. You are the other. And it's so simplistic. You see it now. Um, As controversial as this shouldn't be, um, I absolutely 100% believe that all lives matter, black lives matter, especially in this situation. I absolutely detest, however, the organisation Black Lives Matter because it's exploiting racism. It's actually exacerbating racism. It's a divisive and self-serving ideological group. It's as simple as that. Right. So, But when I say that, People that don't understand what I mean when I say that go, oh, racist, you know, without knowing anything about me, without having any clue of my life, my background, my heritage, my beliefs, anything, because right. I don't believe in their ideology. The way I find it, and it's the same with feminists, because I champion male victims of domestic abuse on um, social media, they automatically believe that I'm trying to eliminate any support for female victims of domestic abuse, despite being a survivor of domestic abuse myself. If they asked me one question, it would blow their theory out of the water. Exactly. <laughs> but they don't. Well, they don't. And they don't have to because they already know the truth. And that's the, yes. that's the problem with extremist thinking is that you don't yes. have to ask questions. You already know all about it without examining it in any way. My, and, my and that's concern, the problem though, there. is that that extremist thinking is no longer reserved for extremists. Well, where I believe we're sort of pushing people in extremist directions with this stuff. Yes, and that's right. and that's where it goes. You might not necessarily have to be, you know, some Al-Qaeda terrorist living in the desert to be a extremist. You can be an extremist no, no, no. in middle Absolutely. America, you know, in, in middle class. There's a whole lot of people, I mean, who are buying into, for example, this QAnon nonsense. And there is extremist thinking on the part of very yes. regular, normal people. <laughs> we all yeah. have the capacity. Yes. I think this this is this is what we um we forget um about any human behavior is that even even really bad behavior and disordered behavior is nothing but an exaggeration of normal behavior. That's right. That's right. So we we all have certain things that we do in our routine, for example, that make us feel comfortable. If we do it in the wrong order, 
it kind of makes you feel a bit, oh, did I put that, did I turn the oven off? Did I do this? And But the extreme end of that is obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm-hmm. So we, we all have the capacity. Um, I, I have a, a theory around psychopathy that is, <laughs> my husband calls it my Star Wars theory, because I, I think um, psychopathy is the dark side of focus. And um, we all, we can all have extreme focus where the world disappears. I can do it sometimes when I'm writing oh, my yeah, dissertation. You get the zone. You get in the zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly yeah. that. Yep. Now, I think that psychopathy could be the opposite end of that continuum mm. and a twisted end because there's a, a, a kind of pop psychology book called The uh, um, Wisdom of Psychopaths by Kevin Dutton, I think. And that talks about psychopathy in neurosurgeons, SAS soldiers, um, people that have to make, um, have to have a focus that removes them from empathy, that mm. removes them from consideration. Mm. And they can switch it on or off. But I think psychopathy is the kind of distorted end of that focus. Maybe. I haven't tested it. It's just a theory. Mm. But we all have the capacity to behave in absolute kindness and absolute horror. There can be situations that trigger that. There can be trauma that triggers that. There can be mental illness that triggers that. But we all have that capacity. That's right. Well, I believe, and the focus of my channel for the most part has been, that that kind of extremist thinking um can also be triggered by propaganda completely (laughs) right you can be propagandized right into a completely and to to just of course go there you can be propagandized all the way into a nazi headspace 100 percent. i mean no 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 one thought that the the nazis were going to do what they did and i imagine a good three quarters of the people that did the stuff they did didn't set out to do that no not at all and the the social pressures and all of that are very very real but but let's not forget that a key component of that um was propaganda and 100%. And, and, a, and an intense amount of it which is now matched i mean that that amount of intense propaganda that occurred in germany pre- post or pre, sorry pre world war 2 um you know builds on decades of a German culture, you know, the loss of World War One, back, 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 yeah. authoritarianism. It's all shame, you know, guilt, um, all the sort of deadly sins, as it were, shame, guilt, yep. Yep. Uh, resentment, envy. Right. That's right. All those, they are absolutely unbelievably easy to press in ordinary people. Exactly my point. And that amount of propaganda that occurred there is dwarfed now by mm. the amount of propaganda we are all experiencing on a daily basis. Yeah. Every single time you pick up your phone, throw, scroll through your feed, go on Twitter, go on TV, listen mm. to the radio, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You are surrounded by it and your brain, whether you like it or not, and whether you agree with it or not, it's taking it all in. And it's yeah, processing and the bizarre it. thing is, is you know. propaganda doesn't appeal to extreme. It, do, it does appeal to extremist thinking, but it doesn't only appeal to extremist no. thinking. 
Yeah. What's what's insidious about propaganda is it really appeals to reasonable people because reasonable people start to think about stuff. That's right. So they think, oh, isn't is my opinion right? Or have have they got maybe they maybe they have got a point about that. That's right. Maybe I'll just not do this that way anymore. Maybe I'm wrong. And we start to doubt ourselves. And then again, propaganda is very shiny marketing. It's 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 nothing more than persistent, consistent, and very well managed brand marketing. That's right. You know, if you if you think about the key things that are taught in very basic marketing classes, have a, a tagline, have a, a easy recognizable brand. So Let's 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 stretch this metaphor a little bit here. You can easily recognize Apple logo in the same way as you can easily recognize a swastika. Mm-hmm. They're all brands. You know, if, if we're very basic about it, they're all brands. I remember um my having been disgusted with my own dad when I was a teenager, as most of us are, he was watching, he was, um, my father served in the British army and he was uh, very into history and he was watching something on the discovery program about the world wars. And this particular program was about Hitler and he, Hitler was delivering a, a speech and he said, and I was, I walked in and with the usual sort of, I, I know it all, 15-year-old, 16-year-old. Dad, how could you possibly be watching this vile human being? And he said, oh, totally agree with you, but wasn't he a great orator? You look at the way he's holding this crowd. You look at how charismatic he was. And in my naivety, I thought my dad was like, oh, my God, my dad's a fan of Hitler. But actually, he was pointing out some of the ways that psychopaths capture their victims, how propaganda is very glossy, very shiny, very appealing, very easy to understand, makes you think that as a 15-year-old socially inept person, you get this, you get this theory, and they get you. Yep. This is your in-group. That's right. And, and I it's, don't... It's, it's insidious the way it does it. Oh, yeah. Very. And I and I think one of the reasons why it is insidious and why we are literally having this conversation today, if I'm going to bring it down to brass tacks, is because I truly believe that most people are utterly clueless about, how, and, I, and I don't mean this in some invalidative way, it means I'm trying to educate, I'm trying to get this information across to people because I want them to understand it, yeah. that the amount of time and effort that goes into this is is not generally appreciated. I mean, you, you bring up Hitler as a great example because people, if you don't study it, you don't realize that Hitler spent hours and hours rehearsing all of those angry speeches. And, he and gave. again, in exactly the same way as we talked about politicians, that even the, the color of what they wear, the yep. hand movements that they use, yep. the length of the pauses that they have, this is. I'm not comparing these people to what what was the outcome of Hitler. What I'm showing is how the propaganda machine hasn't really altered. You know, we hope the outcome's better, but that propaganda machine has not altered in any way. And if you don't believe me, let's, let's look at what I said about where they place the milk in a supermarket. 
And now just placing that milk at the back of a supermarket made you spend at least twice the amount of money you were going to spend in there. And how subtle is that? And now think about how much these politicians want to influence you and think about what they were doing, how easy it is to influence you by moving milk and how much they are putting into this. Because I guarantee that all these politicians that are running at the moment are spending far more than £60 million doing their marketing. Exactly. Let me ask you about one more thing with this, and then maybe we'll start moving toward wrapping up because we've covered a lot of territory here, and yeah. I and I want to <laughs> keep the focus on the on the theme of this because it's uh-huh. there's it's a huge topic, and I anticipate we may be talking again in the future if you're down. <laughs> um, and that is Cambridge Analytica. Mm-hmm. So here you have a group which has now entered into, you know, the world of disrepute and nobody likes Cambridge Analytica. I think they busted up, but they are clearly just rebranding in other directions. It's not like all the people who work there just went and are now living in the sewers. I mean, they are still working and doing their work, right? And those databases still exist. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, this is a public influencing group, I guess you could say that it operates oh, in the in the shadows uh yeah. if you didn't if you if it had not been blown up in the invest in the Mueller investigation here in America I don't know that I ever would have heard the words Cambridge Analytica but yeah. this yeah. was a huge huge thing in the 2016 election because they had access to and were more than happy to utilize tremendous databases of information with very very detailed specific information about millions and millions of people, Facebook users, Twitter users, social media users. And of course, on social media, you know, if you don't understand this yet, and I'd be really surprised if most people don't at this point, but if you don't know this, you're the product on social media. The the, the product is not the the platform. The product is you and your information. And Cambridge Analytica is an outgrowth of that because they are a company that takes that information and then sells the possibility of manipulating people on a mass basis. Like um, we're talking about countries, states, like nations. We're talking about big level manipulation with that information, condensed, collated, correlated, you know, cross-checked and everything else against the various messaging of the clients that, that yep. hire them for this. Can you, so that's the sort of the overview. Can you explain maybe some of the details you know about that or how that operation, those kind of well, firms work? The, again, data. Um, I, I have a friend who follows the commodity markets and, um, they told me that data is um, either now or on its way to being more valuable than oil yep. as a commodity yep. because it, it has such power and such profit potential. Um, I, I don't think we, we, we know how valuable we are as little consumer people. <laughs> I don't really know how to, these little sort of pawns that are being moved, moved around. Um, and it does, it does sound very apocalyptic, but it's, um, it could be, <laughs> it could easily be. Um, so there's, there's many layers that you can use to assess people and their trends. Data's, trends have always been used, statistics, 
Um, like I said, we used to, uh, in Diageo, track the soft flavours, of, of, the flavours of soft drinks, <clears throat> or indeed sweets or anything, that were becoming popular because we could then tap into that to tag our particular brand onto it. Um, uh, Pepsi Max was a great thing that really took off um, in the UK. It's a big favourite of mine. So uh, with Jack Daniels, we used to have a bar call. We wanted people to have a bar call that said, I'll have a Jack and Max. Um, so you would change the language that people would use. And we would test that language across the bar. Um, even, even things like not just if it sounded cool, but if the bar staff could understand what you were saying without hearing it, if the music was too loud. So... Um, if you would say uh, Jack and Max with loads of music going on, could they pick that up and go, yeah, and carry on? So you would test all sorts of stuff. And this is just alcohol. You imagine what it's like if it's a political right. arena where you will have everything on. You've seen it where you've, um, you'll have Googled something ridiculous like uh, spark plugs, and then you go on to a different for, um, platform and there'll be an advert for, for Sparkplugs. And you're looking at it thinking, oh, you, you, I, I don't know how true this is. And I've often said it to John. I've probably Googled it, but I've said, said to my husband, I only told you about that yesterday and now I've got an advert about it. Who's listening to me? <laughs> and it's not that they're listening to you. It's just that they've got this spider web of algorithms that pick up every layer of your behavior. So what time that you uh, log on, how long you log on for, how it is you interact, what type of language do you use? What is it you're doing whilst you're scrolling through Twitter? Are you also logging on to uh, Amazon to buy something? So Amazon, and then, so they start building up this picture of you that actually becomes you, in a tube and then they start connecting lots of other little tubes to create your marketing in group and so those and you'll have, I don't know if you've ever run a business online or anything else but they'll say to you uh, we can help you um, target your ideal audience um, and it, you can choose the age range you can choose the gender you can choose very simplistic things like um, the time that they log on, people will be marketed, marketed into categories of earnings, education, branding. They'll link what brands that you purchase already to what brands can influence in you. Yep. And then they'll start to link that to create a story that absolutely feeds into your confirmation bias. So... Um, if you've been Googling, and, and this is very reductionalist, what I'm doing. I'm trying to just put it into very clunky building blocks. If you've been listening to, uh, if you've been scanning through all of Trump's tweets, and then you've also been buying Nike trainers, they might start showing you pictures of Trump with Nike trainers on or in front of a Nike thing. Or so that the, the positiveness or negativeness of how you view someone is linked to how you view other aspects of your life. Right. So chances are, if you've spent money on something, 
you see that as a positive. We're looking at your little pyramid of hierarchy of needs now and you've gone to work, you've worked all those hours and you've saved and whatever and you've you've got to the top of your, your little pyramid. Your self-actualization is you are part of the in-group Apple. So then they'll start associating people with Apple and then they'll start associating you with people that wear your favorite color and they'll start. And this is, it sounds really simplistic, but most of the best ideas are. And then you imagine that simplistic idea, layer upon layer, day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute, all fed directly into you on your little screen that's eight inches away from your face. And then all of a sudden you get into a debate with someone on Twitter that says Trump's an arsehole and you go, actually, I heard this thing the other day that said he was working hard with Nike to stop at oppression in the third world countries. And it, you, you um, don't, you're not even aware of how much you've absorbed. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the manipulation I'm talking about because yeah. that's deceptive. That is yes. entering in at a level that you're not even aware of. Well, and, and we're and not. Everybody we're thinks, not aware and, of and this is the problem with this, is because people believe because they don't understand psychology, in sociology, and neuroscience, right? They really don't get it. That they, don't, they also the, don't these, believe that their brain, their brain works against them in a lot of capacity. Because right. That's right. Your brain, your brain might be manipulating you because it's still on. Killing Fields time, not Apple iPhone time, where it's going, we need to stay in this group because if we don't, we're going to get cast out and we'll get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> you won't get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, but you won't have any mates. You'll feel really lonely. You'll probably get depressed. You know, all, all the bad things that we, we associate with not being in the in-group. That's right. You'll be an outcast. That's right. That's why, that's why I just have to laugh. And I do. I laugh out loud. Whenever I see comments and people telling me, oh, yeah, I, advertising doesn't work on me. Oh, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm immune to that stuff, right? for a fact it works on me. You <laughs> study this shit. <laughs> exactly. As, if, you, if you think you're immune to this, you are clueless. I mean, listen yeah. to everything we've been talking about. There have been not millions. There have been billions and billions of dollars invested in figuring out how to manipulate you and you think you're mr immune you're dreaming <laughs> yeah. you are, are absolutely are thousands thousands hundreds of thousands millions of people that have gone through college and university this whole education is based on how to get money out of your pocket and make you feel good about doing it exactly so can you imagine the amount of people and effort and money that is put into how to get you to walk into a little room and believe that you have free will and that you believe in democracy to put your tiny little cross in that tiny little box right. and so that you can walk out as if you bought a pair of Levi's. Exactly. I've exactly. had my say. I've had my decision. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. You've been manipulating. I mean, to be honest, there's only a handful of people you can make that little cross against. And that's manipulation from the start. That's and right. And no one puts a box in going, all of them are shit. So can we just start again? <laughs> that's right. Oh, I'll tell you, i tell you, you know, a question, you know, again, simplicities can sometimes be very powerful. Somebody just, you know, suggested the other day, why don't, what if you could just vote for anybody? 
Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah, you could. I, I, I mean, you, theoretically, you could because you can write in, you know. But but what if, like, who should be president of the United States? And that was, question um, threw me for a loop because I was like, holy shit. I, yeah, sh- and that would, be, that, that would be amazing because it would yeah. be based on actions, not perceived marketing personality. That's right. I think Brett, Brett Weinstein was talking about something. I must catch up with their podcasts. Mm. He's got a podcast with his wife, Helen, called um, is it Dark Horse or, or something. Oh, something like that, yeah. It, it's amazing, and, and I, I must make time to catch up with it. But he was talking about a whole new thing where they could, um, I mm-hmm. think – I'm, I'm probably way off here, but essentially what you're saying that they would vote for someone that has done something great for the community and has a moral compass that is um, less self-serving because we all self-serve to, to a degree, mm-hmm. less self-serving, but has is, 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 is spent, has is, is got a track record of, of having the right morals for the majority of people, okay? And then you would vote them in and you would... Um, almost have them as a public servant and you would pay them really well and and you know you you would make it it, it was almost be forced upon them but because that they were they, they that kind of person they would probably take it in the spirit that it was meant exactly rather than and, and billy conley is who's a scottish comedian said um then the want to be a politician should automatically ban you from being a politician. <laughs> exactly. I mean, at this point, that's almost uh, axiomatic. That is almost yeah. like, I mean, because who rises to the top in our modern society? Yeah. I mean, at this point in the pendulum swing of the world, when we look at UK, when we look at China, when we look at America, when we look at South American countries, when we look at India, we are seeing, you know, authoritarianism rising yeah. up. And yeah, it is... An un, it is a very disturbing trend, and this is absolutely, absolutely the product of propaganda and, and social manipulation. And, we, and we've got to, for our own sakes, and the reason why I do these podcasts, again, is because I want to raise awareness on this stuff so that people can decide whatever the hell they want, but they're the ones deciding it, not because they've been manipulated into believing that. And that is a tall order. Well, I, I would just like people to think about it in these really simplistic Deb's terms. Next time you go and buy milk and you come out with six other different <laughs> items, then think about the person stood in front of you on the TV screen and think about how easy it was to get you to part with your money on those six items that you had no idea you wanted. And then look at all the effort that person is putting in to try and get your vote. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Deb, thank you very much for taking the time to help. Absolute me, pleasure. Yeah, talk about this stuff. I um, like I said, I, I anticipate we may have future discussions because <laughs> there's there's a deep well here. I mean, the psychological oh, aspects yeah. of this and the mechanisms and stuff, and 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 we've touched on all the stuff that my channel has has focused on for years with motivated reasoning and cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. and the confirmation bias. So it's you know, so none of this stuff is particularly like new but it's constant it's it's a constant work on our part to stay aware of this information yeah. keep it at the front and center this isn't some interesting little bit of stuff that explains why crazy people go for scientology this no. stuff explains why as she just said right why you buy 10 items in addition to the milk 
<laughs> and you didn't intend to. You didn't go there with that intent. And then your intent was manipulated and you leave thinking this was all my choice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> and advertising doesn't work on me. <laughs> right. And I just please beg you guys, you know, this isn't uh, this isn't from a position of superiority. This isn't from an ivory tower. This is me begging you guys. Pay attention to this stuff. Look at how it filters into your life because it's there 24-7, you know, and think about this stuff and, and think about how you can push back against some of it in your own day to day. Because the more you do, the more free you will actually be mentally. And that's what this really, that at the end of the day, that's really all I'm trying to do. So again, Deb, thank you very much for your, for your input Absolute here. pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, so have I. Uh, and I hope you guys did too. You know, as much as I'm sitting here pontificating and yelling at you guys, I hope you, I hope you guys enjoyed this too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and on that note, of course, if you find my channel informative, entertaining, and educational, then perhaps consider joining me on Patreon because, uh, honestly, I'm going to say right now, I really need it. And it would be very, very, you know, good uh, to keep the show going, keep the lights on, and, and continue to bring you guys guests of this caliber so we can have these awesome conversations. <laughs> uh, and, of course, you can always use uh, PayPal. Links to all of this stuff is below in the description section here on YouTube. All right, guys. I will see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>